Welcome to Podcast at SDA. I'm David Bridell, and this is our new season of podcasts devoted to exploring the plays that we will be producing over the course of 2016-2017 at USC School of Dramatic Arts. Special thanks goes to Phil Allen and the team at the VoiceOver Studio for facilitating this. It was actually Phil's idea, so thanks for that, Phil. Our first production in the current season is the play Mockingbird. It's written by Julie Jensen, and it's based on the novel by Catherine Erskine. Today's guest will be Julie Jensen, as long as she picks up the telephone. But before we call her, let's go over a little bit about Julie's career. Julie Jensen is the recipient of the Kennedy Center Award for New American Plays for her piece, White Money, the Joseph Jefferson Award for Best New Work, that is the Las Vegas series, and the Los Angeles Weekly Award for Best New Play, that's Two-Headed. Uh, Julie's won the Mill Mountain Theatre Playwriting Competition three times, and her plays have been produced in London, at the Edinburgh Fringe, and in the United States, uh, the Women's Project in New York, as well as in theatres nationwide. She's been commissioned by the Mark Taper Forum, Ask Theatre Projects, and the Kennedy Center, and recently she was awarded the NEA TCG Residency Grant. She now holds also a major grant from the Pew Charitable Trusts, and she's the resident playwright at the Salt Lake Acting Company. So let's welcome now Julie Jensen. So um, let's chat a bit about Mockingbird. It's the first play in our season um, this academic year, and we're delighted mm-hmm. to be producing it. Um, so I'm going to quiz you a little bit about the piece, and, um, and we'll just sort of Great. drift along with the conversation, see where it takes us. Um, uh-huh. So this play is based on a novel by Catherine Erskine. Um, how did you first encounter it, and, and what drew you to the material? Um, it was uh, it was a commission from uh, Kennedy Center, okay. uh, Center for Young Audiences, and um, uh, so they had found the material and uh, had gotten the rights. That's always an issue yeah. of where the rights reside, and uh, they they'd had the rights for a couple of years, and um, and they asked me to take a look at the at the book. I was aware of it, but I hadn't I hadn't really read it. it won the national book award for its category right uh, a few years ago so i i was aware of it but i hadn't read it and um and i thought oh my god this is amazing work so mm. it was it, it was a yes automatically after that okay and what did you think about the challenges that you face as a playwright in turning a novel that came from somebody else's brain into a theatrical adaptation that came out of your brain you know how, um, how did you negotiate that it's it, it's sometimes hard and sometimes fairly easy hmm. in this case it was quite easy she herself Catherine Erskine writes scenes discrete scenes hmm. so they can translate as scenes in a play. She also writes pretty good dialogue. Mm. Uh, the book, if you've read that, is is um, it's well, for, first of all, it's too long, and it's got too many episodes. Mm-hmm. So the the structure has to be adapted for a play because it it it, uh, it goes on to gallops along too long. Mm. Uh, but uh, once the structure you know, you re- reassess and figure out a, a, a decent structure that has a single climax. 
Um, then it, it went pretty easily. Um, the voice of the character of Caitlin, mm. uh, Catherine Erskine had pretty well. So she had a voice that was interestingly original. And uh, together with my own sense of what the voice might be, I, I think we did a good job uh, capturing it and moving it further. I wanted to ask about the relationship between a novel and a play. It strikes me that mm -hmm. the sort of first-person singular that's available in a novel that goes directly into the mind of the reader is somehow mm -hmm. changed in the context of a, the public event of a play, where as an audience member you sort of see everything, not just the narrative through one individual. So did did that cross your mind? Is that something you worked on a lot? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And most novels, that's true. Yeah. That that uh, the internal monologue, if you will, is inappropriate mm. uh, for the stage. Simply won't work. Mm. Um, this has got a little bit better. Uh, the, the novel has it, it is it feels like a narration where she's explaining to you what happened. Mm -hmm. And you can use that um, in a play a little bit easier than you can, oh, complicated feelings or weird tangents that, uh, that go off into a very subjective place. Sure. And that she doesn't really do that much of that. Yeah. A little bit, but... Um, uh, most of it feels like narration. She's explaining what's going on, how she feels about something, but not it, it, it isn't uh, hugely subjective. Um, so it was easier than it might have been. Uh, I was reminded, believe it or not, when I opened the book, uh, the opening monologue, which we use in the play, I thought, my God, this is Faulkner. Uh -huh. You couldn't you couldn't make a play out of Faulkner that would work very well right. because of that issue. Right. But um, this was uh, she's just explaining what the what the box looks like that was her brother's scout project, um, and it's it's a weird description because she's seeing it from an off center place, but. Mm -hmm. And describing it in that way, but it's it's beautifully described, and and it's exactly what she says. You have the advantage also with an autistic kid of their ruthless honesty. So, yes. uh, how things are is is not quite as weirdly subjective as it might be, because they're just simply honest. This is what it is. Why are they acting differently? This is what it feels like or doesn't feel like. Why are they feeling differently? So it's um, the advantage is that they're really honest. And it also occurs to me when you say that that one of the one of the things that comes across very clearly in the play is the sense that um, to use a kind of an old trope, it, maybe it's possible that Caitlin is the sanest and everyone else around her is in some way kind well, of off kilter. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think that's very true. And and hanging around autistic people, particularly high-functioning ones like Caitlin, it feels like that. You think, oh, yeah, right, okay, I get that. Hmm. And, and we've made accommodations to a social world and 
what might be called manners, um, and they simply don't understand why we do that. Mm. And maybe sometimes we shouldn't. So yeah, <laughs> you're right about that. The 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 world. She's dealing with a very complicated set of circumstances at this point. Her father is pretty much non-functioning, mm. and um, her mother's out of the picture. She died several years ago, and and the and the brothers just died. So that's that's a huge blow, and she functions better because she's not hooked up emotionally in the same way. Mm. And, uh, and so she's, she's a little more helpful to people like her dad and, um, others who, who might expect her to have some complicated response to this. Um, she doesn't understand what all of that complicated response would be. Right. Does she miss her brother? Yes. Does she know what the emotional baggage is for most people? No. Mm. So it's another set of, uh, responses. Yeah. Did Did you have any trepidation um, dramatizing a piece that is sort of catalyzed by a shooting incident, a, a school shooting? Is that something that you know you kind of treat with caution, or did you eagerly want to bring that to the stage because it's so much part of our national discourse at the moment? Or what were your feelings around around? Um, that? Thanks for that question. You're You're right. It's dicey. Yeah. Um, uh, it's in the book, <laughs> so right, of course. I didn't. Catherine uh, uh, was going to live in in um, Virginia, mm. and she was writing about the Blacksburg incident uh-huh. at the time. And uh, it, yes, it's dicey, and yes, it affects all of us. Uh, we'd like to shield children from it if we could, of mm. course. Um, but I didn't finally and ultimately have much trepidation about it because it's so central to how the story is told and where she and her father arrived by the end of play. She's not going to be quote unquote cured. Mm. <laughs> That's not what you do, mm. but she does make some accommodations. She does understand things better and she's helpful. She's helpful to her, to her dad. Mm. Um, so, and I don't know how you'd separate that or or put it in another context. Um, the little boy she befriends is is suffering as well. His mother was was a teacher and mm-hmm. and she was shot. Mm-hmm. It's a creepy world. Um, two two little kids at recess talking about you know what. What happened to their relatives? It's it's creepy. Yeah, it's disturbing. But it's sure. also our world, and I I don't think um, it, it wasn't a problematic in in productions that have that have been staged. It certainly wasn't an issue that that people complained about or kids got upset about or uh, um, audiences expressed problems with. So yeah. I think it's done sensitively enough that it. It's okay. I think so too, and of course, we don't see the shooting as part of the action. It's you know, yeah, it precedes yeah, exactly. the event, which is if it, if it even taking place off stage during the course of the play, it's right? A little bit different thing. Right. We're, it's already happened by the time the play starts. Yeah. yeah. Do you think, Julie, when you're writing this piece, does, is there any kind of um, 
access in your mind to classical structures. For I, I try not to sound too pompous when I ask this question, but that there is a kind of a chorus that's there, you know, in terms of the school children that surround Caitlin and she herself as a mm-hmm. protagonist. And and we just discussed there's this sort of offstage event that catalyzes everything. You know, did that did that cross your mind consciously at all, or is it just sort of tucked away? Well, n- not particularly. You know, let's do a ster- Aristotelian mm, stuff, mm. but I think uh, what one thing is true of of uh, of the play, and is true of this particular condition, is that it's very theatrical. Mm-hmm. Um, if you express how the or take a look at how the world and experiences look to an autistic kid, if you try and recapitulate what that might look like, it's theatrical. It's sometimes over the top, hmm. as those kids are in the chorus or whatever they would be called. Hmm. You're right. It's kind of an ensemble. might be a chorus. Yeah. Um, and they're very important. You can't, you can't decide to do it without them or, you know, do it with two kids instead of, you know, a, yeah. a bigger group. Um I was not consciously aware of of uh, Aristotelian things, but I've been a playwright for a hell of a long time. <laughs> I used to teach it all it's the time. It's part of your DNA. You, it, it, yeah, yeah, it's in there, whether whether you're consciously manipulating it or not. Right. But I did want those kids, and that's why a director is so important in this production, in this for this play. Mm. It's not people sitting around talking. It really isn't. And if those um, scenes with the kids aren't staged really well, then it can feel um, it can feel over the top mm-hmm. or it can feel uh, chaotic. It ought to feel chaotic but under control. I mean, um, it's chaotic and it's noisy and it's loud, but there's a line in there where an audience thinks, uh, 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 over the top for me, I don't want to be in it. it so, yeah. um, it does occur to me that... So it's a line. That's right. And there's a challenge, of course, for actors who may be older than the characters. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and it, certainly this will be true for our company. Um, there'll be yeah. students yeah. 18, 19, 20, playing 14, well, We did a years. workshop of it at um, Weber State, uh, which is a school just north of Salt Lake, uh, when the play was in the process. Um, and the same director has done now three productions of it. Um, and she she was magnificent, and I think she's amazing. But her her work on the physicality of the play uh, was so important. Um, it's hard for a playwright to understand how to do that in the mm-hmm. absence of a bunch of bodies on the stage. Yeah. And I have to say um, that of the productions I've seen of the play. Uh, that was one of the best because the kids were a little younger. It, it, you know, they're they're students, they're college students, so you're you're in that category as well. Yeah. Other productions are going to have twenty five, thirty year old people, and that has that has another feeling. Um, they're better actors, maybe, sure. um, but there's a, an exuberance of the young people that's, that's they can remember being five and seven <laughs> better yeah. than we can. So. Yeah. 
I wanted to ask you a little bit about the resolution um, of the piece because you mentioned earlier that um, you know nobody gets cured, no one is sort of mm-hmm. e- exonerated here, but nevertheless mm-hmm. there is there is a change, a shift that takes place uh, towards mm-hmm. the end, and it seems mm-hmm. to be that. Caitlin is the one who manages to um, sort of evoke that change, um, mm-hmm. and then and then the impact of that on her father and others is very profound. Can, can you just describe anything about that because it fascinates me? I, I can't find ways of putting it into words, but I'm very interested in how you look at it. Um, no, it's a good question. The uh, the challenge from the outset, and I'm sure it's true of of uh, Catherine Erskine when she was writing the novel. Mm. Um, you're not dealing in the same uh, world of I'll talk about theater uh, that the, you're 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 following a character who goes through something and probably always almost always changes and you can't presume that about the character here you cannot right. and if you start in th- on that stuff. You are so wrong. Hmm. It's not like they don't make strides and don't learn to accommodate. They do. Mm-hmm. And with help and all sorts of intervention, things change in their lives so that they're much more able to cope with the world and you know, hold on jobs and all sorts of things. But my God, you can't say, well, now they're, in there, now they're fixed. Right. They went through that and now they're fixed. No way. Um, so and that's a challenge. That's really a challenge, and it's an interesting one. I kind of like to do plays in which there's not a huge amount of change, um, but most of them, I have to admit, that's what you're dealing with. Mm. Where are you at the beginning of the play, and where are you at the end? Mm. This character uh, makes some big shifts, and that accounts for how it how it's satisfying to the extent that it is. I think it is satisfying. Um, she just is coping with the world in a different way. She understands certain issues about her dad by the end. She sort of gets it and uh, and he's moved away from his profound the most profound level of his grief. Um, and the two of them are going to be okay. Mm. Uh, that's what we think, mm. and probably true. Um, but it is that's, that's a challenge to to presume at the top that this character is not going to change all that much. Thank Can't. Can't. Um, Julie, I was going to ask you, the resolution itself. Do you think that it is about uh, coming to terms with the shooting that that sets the whole story in motion? in a way that the father is now going to sort of return to life um, and at least be functional? And if that's true in any way, then does that sort of mirror what Caitlin is going through in terms of dysfunction and function? It seems to me like you sort of pull the two together very very, very it's, yeah, effectively. Yeah, they're really separate at the top in that, in that right. funeral scene. They're not quite getting along. They're not in the same... He's he's simply not functioning. Um, he's just in off in another world, and he is throughout the play. Um, by the end, um, he's come to an accommodation of what the world is with Caitlin. I think 
the the brother functioned all the time in their lives as a go-between between right uh the dad and and Caitlin I'm sure that was the case so she didn't she's 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 lost that connection yeah. to her dad and he's lost the connection as well the dad's lost the connection I think what happens is that the dad comes to terms of where he is and who he's with. Um, and that Caitlin gets a sense by the end of how to remember her brother. She, she's, she's remembering an event where he uh, was getting his little uh, eagle scout thing or some scouting life, life forward. And... Um, and and she can remember what he said to her, and she can remember how important that was to her and how she functioned. But she also remembers that she's sad, and that's always pro- a problem for her, that she doesn't quite understand what sad is. Mm. Those, that emotional chart is, uh, is in the play for a reason. They're studying the faces so they can figure out how people feel. And uh, your dad's upset. What's upset? Your dad's sad. Uh, okay, why is he sad? Well, he's sad because your brother is killed. Okay, uh, but now she sort of understands what sad is, and uh, not that she will always understand it, or that she will understand it tomorrow. But she does. Right. She's. She's in touch with what the profound level of, of his absence means. Yes, and when you talk about um, the shifts that she does make, um, you know, within what's within the realms of what's possible to her, I suppose that that captures it. That at least for a moment, we don't know if it'll happen the next day or the day after, but at least for one uh, moment, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah, so for, for for right now, she's she's in touch with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah good. Can you tell us a bit about the title, Julie? Because uh, for someone, for example, who might come to the piece as an audience member for the first time, for the only mm-hmm. time, um, what to make of Mockingbird and and where does it sort of belong in the structure, or not the structure, but in the theme of the piece? Um, it, that for me was an issue, um, both with the novel and the play. Um, I wondered if I should retitle it. Mm. Um, not that I think this is a bad title, but um, it's it's based on on the Harper Lee novel. That the the characters in the novel are very important to Caitlin. She likes Scout, and she likes the idea of being Scout, and she likes the people in her family being uh, characters from the no- from the mo- in this case the movie. Right. So she and her brother used to watch the movie a lot. And I think the reason the movie is important to her is that um, we've got a single dad and we've got these two kids. Mm-hmm. And the, so she sees that family as similar to hers or could be, that it could be. And um, so we're harking back all the time to kill him, to, to the to the novel and to mm-hmm. the film, but mostly the film, of To Kill a Mockingbird. So um, that's the reason why um, the title, um, it's not like you have to have 
known the movie or the book, but a lot of people do. And um, Harper Lee just died, in fact, so oh, yeah, and published great. another um, precursor to this to to Kill a Mockingbird. So it's kind of appropriate now. It's kind yeah. of timely. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm not I'm not sure how universal the book and the movie are these days. I'm I'm just not sure. Uh, maybe they are. Maybe they still. Uh, I think everyone still reads still them somewhere along the line. Yeah, I think so. Well, yeah, I think I think junior high kids. I'll yeah. I'll read it. That's um, right. And then they see the film, and you know, it's it's a it's an old one, but it still holds up. I'm surprised that it does, but it does. Yeah. That's curious, though, to think about the fact that Caitlin likes to envisage her family as, uh, you know, sort of mirroring what she sees in the movie, and that raises questions uh-huh. about a number of things, you know, what what is real and what isn't, and what is sort of self-mythologizing and what isn't. And through her unique perspective, we might we might see that a little differently than if you or I went around, you know, imagining that our families yes, were... Yes, yes, yes. Well, it does bring up that whole idea of, of the definition of families. Right. And that hers doesn't look like other people's. Right. Um, I don't know if it disturbs her particularly, but she, it, it simply isn't like other people's families. Yeah. So she, hers, isn't, hers isn't in sync. And that she's found one that seems to be like hers it must be must be quite satisfying yeah do you find that the play now that you've written it and has been produced several times um do you find that you have you seen many of those productions and do you find that you're very drawn to certain elements most of them uh i've, I've seen two, one two yeah, I've seen them up to now. Okay. <laughs> I have seen them up to now. Okay. Uh, most of them are taking, uh, taking place this season. There's six or seven of them this season. Oh, good. Um, uh, and I won't see them. Uh, you know, I won't see all of them. Mm. Um, the, the question is what? Well, that, uh, what are you drawn to in, in stage productions? What has struck you as being very impactful? And uh, you mentioned earlier something about, you know, the age of the actors having some bearing, but... And and the sort of skill of the director in the physical life. Mm-hmm. But anything else that yeah. that has popped out when you've watched it? Um, I'm I'm drawn to how, of course, Caitlin is mm. is represented. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I saw actually a high school production not too long ago that um, that. I loved what they did with the kids. That was fabulous, just amazing. Hmm. And all the transitions were very, very uh, original, strange, choreographed in a very interesting way. Hmm. Um, the The part that always intrigues me, and and it does every time, are those group scenes. And I think the funeral scene and some of those recess scenes, classroom scenes, those, they're fascinating to watch. If you see the play more than once, you mm-hmm. get to watch other characters um, than you did the first time. It's uh, Those are really interesting and should be. Mm. Um, it's, it's surprising to me that some of those, when we did the auditions in, um, in Washington, D.C., we got wonderful actors, of course, and... Um, 
And they would audition, and sometimes they could see that they would have four lines or something like that. And I thought, oh, God, we'll lose these people. Right. But we didn't, because uh, Tracy Callahan, who was directing it, said, um, okay, now I want to do a physical workshop with you guys, and then we'll decide on testing. So she did the workshop, and we didn't lose anybody. <laughs> they, they all wanted to be in it. Because it was so interesting, the work was so interesting, um, and it was a different level of of working on stage. So they liked it, and they wanted to do it because it was something other than what they were used to doing, sitting mm. around talking. Right. So uh, even though the number of lines they may have is very, very minimal, the amount of work they do, the number of times they're on stage, the, what they get to express is, is wonderful. It's fun. Really good. Great. So my last couple of questions um, take a kind of wider view or a longer view of this play and, and of your work in general. Um, I wanted to ask you if Mockingbird as a piece is connected to any kind of um, theme or, or vision of life that is reflected in your other work. And does it, is it an outlier because it's an adaptation of somebody else's novel or does it sort of fit into your... I don't think so. I don't think so. I think the voice is, is kind of mine. Mm. Um, I like writing, uh, like coming-of-age things. Uh -huh. I've done several of them. Uh, you mentioned Two-Headed earlier. Uh -huh. I play called Wait, which is about the coming-of-age in a, in a theater company. Um, it's, a, it's a comedy. Um, so I think that voice or that point of view or that angle of vision is not particularly unique to me or not particularly unique to this project but right. but something that I've done several times right. um, I like that I don't I don't write a lot of plays about adolescence although I've done a couple but I I think capturing that that cusp of life before adolescence sets in, sets in and that moment right before that adolescence comes along. I think adolescence is hard to, to put on the stage. Mm -hmm. We've got too much of it in television and they're not well enough done. And nah, nah, nah. Mm -hmm. uh, But I love that moment right before that. I think that's a, it's a facet. They're smarter than they would be as kids. They're uh, coming to terms with a ton of stuff that's mm. smart and old, and and they're understanding where things are going wrong, and and I, I love I love that time of life. I love that. Mm. Um, so in that sense, it's it's a play that's kind of typical of what I I'd like. <laughs> I might say, however. The newest play I have is a piece called Winter. Mm. It's about an older woman who's uh, sliding into dementia, and she's had a, a suicide pact with her husband mm. for a long, long time. And uh, she wants it to she wants to activate it, and he's not ready. It's mm. not not his time. So what's she going to do about it? And uh, so it's a play about the right to die and the time choosing your own time. Mm. So it's issues about older, older people rather than younger ones. 
But even though you mention it, um, briefly it does occur to me that uh, there might be something about your female protagonist in that play that you could connect to Caitlin in that, you know, they hold kind of unusual views of the universe. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Very good good point. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and the last thing I wanted to ask you, Julie, is you know you're you're working um, very consistently, almost prolifically, I would say, in in American theater with um, plays that are produced regularly across the country. And I wanted mm-hmm. to uh, oh, go ahead, sorry. Uh, I wanted to ask you whether you have any particular view of the sort of health of the American theater at this time. Um, uh, do you pay attention to the wider scene? And, and Oh, my God, <laughs> do I ever. What, yeah. you, what <laughs> yeah. are you enjoying out there, and what, what are your thoughts about what's going on in our, in our theatrical landscape? Oh, I think, I think we're, you know, the theater is always un, unhealthy in some ways. I mean, it's always on that teetering on the edge of something or other right. that's drastic. Um, but if it weren't, I don't know what we'd be doing uh, or how we'd complain. <laughs> um, but I, I see, I see fabulous work, and I think we're getting better and better. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, we we move from absurdism to realism to now to a world in which directors are much more important, um, and I think that is making the theatrical experience much more vivid mm. and exciting. Um, the stuff that's really happening in New York is, is of a piece with that. Uh, certainly things like Hamilton and um, Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson and those kinds of plays yeah. are really director. They're, they're so dependent on a director mm. and a good one and an interesting vision from the directorial point of view. Mm. And I think that's ma- uh, magic. I just think it's magical. Then, if you would like to just make a high contrast with that, you can look at Annie Baker, who is really minimal. Mm. It, it, sometimes you can't figure out what you're supposed to watch because there seems to be nothing. And it's they're very stark elemental experiences in the theater but profound if you're if you're caught by them which i am you are really moved by a kind of desolation of the characters that she's writing about and they're 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 very powerful so we've got these these two um two trains running uh Mm. to quote august wilson it would the seem almost on uh, perpendicular paths, mm-hmm. but uh, I think it's a sign of how healthy we are, and we're doing very interesting work. And uh, there's a lot of new work. I I'm, I have a production in the next summer, actually, here in Berkeley, and I'm in Berkeley right now. Um, and that theater does nothing but new work. Mm. Wow! Thank you, Jesus. We need it. <laughs> and there are a lot of theaters like that that are doing nothing but new work, and and they don't care. It's like you've never heard of these plays. Too bad. Right. Come and see them, and the people do. So, I think that's exciting. I think it's it's important. Um, I hate to be 
overly optimistic about what it means. We're always a little bit desperate about money and audiences in terms of what our younger people coming to the theater are, are young children, kids, high school kids, those, those people. There is a lot of theater that directly addresses them. Once they get out of school and out of college and away from, and they're living their lives with their own kids, my experience is that they don't go to the theater, they go to see whatever their kid is in. And that seems weird to me, and, and I, I, I think it's not healthy. Mm. Uh, but the theaters I'm working with, the theaters I know, they're doing really well. I don't uh, Plan B in Salt Lake does nothing but new play by plays by local writers. Uh, Pygmalion does one or two plays a year that are new. Salt Lake Acting Company has a season this year. I think four plays out of five are new world premieres. That's amazing. That's amazing. And they fill the house. It's a big. Th- I mean, it's not huge, but it's a big theater. It's, uh, it seats about 160. Yeah. And uh, and they run five weeks. So. You know, they're doing well. Um, and I think that there is a hunger out there for the kinds of issues that, that theater is, is able to address. I think they that people like the experience in, in plays, live theater. Um, and um, I'm happy to be a part of it right now. I think it's uh, healthier than it's been in my lifetime. Um, That's you know, a, yeah. it's... it's it's better now than it was when I was a young writer, and God knows it is. Uh, many more theaters, many more theaters doing new work. Um, National New Play Network is important to the that new play development thing. Um, the, uh, the there's a website that's connected to that uh, New Play Exchange, so that people can get new work seen, uh, read by theaters by just going to a network of, of new plays. Yeah. Those are all wonderful things. They're just uh, very exciting things. Theaters like Washington, D.C., and you wouldn't think, oh, right off, let's all go to a play when we get to Washington. That that town has 600, I'm, I'm, I'm not overstating the number either, 600 plays in that area, 600 theaters in that area. Uh, not all of them are professional, but a lot of them are. Mm-hmm. It's just, that's just an active scene. Uh, it's a wonderful town for theater. Wonderful, wonderful. Mm-hmm. And we all know about Chicago and, you know, Denver and Atlanta and various other cities that have had a pretty good theater rep for years. Yeah. L.A. for that for that matter. Yeah. Well, it's very exciting. And in our season that that you your piece is opening, among, you know, some classics that you would Expect at a mm-hmm. at a theater school like ours. We also have uh, Regina Taylor's Magnolia, which is her adaptation of the Cherry Orchard. Oh, great! Oh, yeah. Um, oh. It, which is very exciting, and we're finishing out with Anne Washburn's uh, Mr. Burns, a post-electric play, which is kind of a startling modern piece. And I, I think that great, what, wonderful. What is, that's also new. Yeah, that's new. The, the that's right. universities used to do Breck, Moliere, Shakespeare, and um, I don't know. Moldy or something, and, and that be it. Yeah. And then you're done, and yeah. and you know all of theater history, and so there you go. Yeah. Uh, no, new play is part of that scene, and I'm, I'm 
delighted to hear that. That's great. Yeah. Great. Annie Washburn, uh, which one is it? Uh, Mr. Burns, the post-electric play. Oh, that's, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, so oh, she's a lovely writer. Really yes, lovely. and and actually that's right at the end. So the two of you kind of uh, uh, bookend the whole season, which I think is terrific. Great, so. great. Happy to be there. Well, thank you so much, Julie. It's a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank thanks, you. thanks for your insights. My on the pleasure. Piece. My pleasure. The wonderful Julie Jensen talking about her play Mockingbird, adapted from the novel by Catherine Erskine, a Helen Hayes Award nominee, both for the outstanding original play or musical adaptation and for an outstanding production for theatre for young audiences when it was first produced at the Kennedy Center. You can catch Mockingbird at the MCC Theatre here at the USC School of Dramatic Arts, running September 29th through October the 2nd. We hope you join us for this production and, of course, for many others in our season. Our next podcast, we will explore further what it takes to put together a play by the certain author by the name of William Shakespeare. Tune in. Podcast at SDA is a production of the USC School of Dramatic Arts. Your host is the Dean of the School of Dramatic Arts, David Bridell. Podcast at SDA is recorded, edited, and mixed by the students and faculty of the BFA Sound Design Program. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Podcast at SDA.